And I know students are mostly gone, but howdy! Hey, I hear you. Okay. So guys, my name is Benjamin Pinkerton. I'm the college pastor here at our Anderson campus. Always super exciting to be here with you. Really excited. I hope that y'all have been following along with us as we've been going through, for the past couple months, the book of Revelation. And so last week, Brian preached on the last two chapters of the New Testament, so I have the privilege today of one, being done with Revelation, and two, preaching on the first chapter of the New Testament, looking at Jesus, specifically his genealogy and his birth. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, right off the bat in the New Testament. Now, I've always been a guy, uh, if you haven't noticed, even just body language, I'm a pretty excitable uh, human being. I get really pumped. I get really excited, like nervous energy about really everything. Uh, and so it was no different growing up. Christmas time for me was, I, it was my jam. I was like so pumped. Uh, Santa, I was like, I was that kid who's like waking up everyone and getting excited and thinking about what's coming next. And I, I believe I passed that on to my daughter, right? Because I think that naturally many of us, we're, we're really just, we're, we're made to anticipate with excitement certain things. In fact, I would actually make the argument that all of us long for certain things, even if we don't realize it. And, and so my, my wife, she works remotely for a Christian nonprofit in Dallas. And time to time, she has to travel to Dallas to do her events and different things like that. And when she leaves, it's me and, and Charlie, Joy, my daughter, uh, who has a lots of extended time with Lulu and Pappy, who live here in town, which is amazing. Uh, but I, I turned to Charlie... Uh, because I knew that, that her mom was going to be home soon. And I said, mama's coming home. And, and right in that moment, my daughter, she left the living room. And she proceeds to go right to the front door and just stand at the front door. Uh, and she's 20 months. I mean, she's young. She's not two years old yet. She stands at the front door. And I have video evidence. And you'll have to excuse my voice that's high-pitched. But, uh, you know, girl, dad, unashamed. Here we go. Charlie, who are you looking for? Emma. Yeah, me too. Want to look through the window again? Is she coming? Is Mama coming? Where is she? Where is she? We're all waiting. We're all waiting for her. Yeah, we're waiting for Mama. Yeah, that's it. I just, there you go. That's my daughter. Uh, but also me. Like, you see that kind of play. I'm like, uh, Mama's coming home. And she's like, Mama! And she rushes to the front door, stands at the window, and just sits there. And I'm like, well, she'll, she'll be home in a while. I'm following her and find my friends. But so we just all sat there waiting for Mom to go for like 10, 15 minutes. The dogs are sitting by us. We're all really excited. My question would be, uh, why... Why does my daughter already, before two years old, already she, she hears the name Mama and she runs to the door uh, excited to see her mom? There's things that she knows about her mom. And obviously I'm very excited uh, for Mama to, to come home as well uh, for my sanity and, and everything else. And, and so really pumped for that. But we're excited because, well, we know uh, Kara Right? We know my wife, and, we know, and, and Charlie Joy, she knows her mom. Uh, she knows her care for her, her compassion. She knows that mom comes home. Every time she leaves, she always comes back. 
She's excited for that. And so, therefore, we can eagerly anticipate the arrival of, of our loved one. And I hope you know where I'm going with this as a pastor, right? It's Christmas time. And really, even all the way through the book of Revelation, you're seeing this theme over and over again that Jesus is going to come back and he wins. And he's going to make all things right and it's beautiful. And it's meant for us to, to live differently based on what's to come in the future. But also, we are built and made to anticipate the joy that is coming. When Jesus comes back and he makes all things right, and that even last week, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, perfect bodies, perfect will and emotions and heart and obedience. Everything is better. There's no tear and sorrow. We are, we are built to anticipate shalom, of perfection that Jesus will bring. And, and yet this week, we get to stop, and as we have just one week until Christmas, we actually, instead of just looking forward and, and how that changes the way we live now, we get to look back, not at Jesus' second advent, but at his first advent. We are built to anticipate with eagerness. So I want to talk uh, a little bit before we jump right into Matthew chapter 1. There's, there's context, uh, because many of you, I'm going to read the genealogy of Jesus, and I know what you're probably going to do. Because I do it sometimes, and everyone I talk to as well, where they open up the book of Matthew and they go, Matthew chapter 1, genealogy of Jesus. Okay, okay, he, the Christ. Okay, let's jump down to Mary. Okay, there we go. Angel comes to Mary. Let's just skip the genealogy. But the reality is that there's some, some things that we're going to learn from the genealogy, and, and hopefully it becomes part of our rhythms of admiring who God is because of even the family Jesus was born into. You see, the, the book of Matthew was written by a man named Matthew, formerly known as Levi. He was uh, an apostle of Jesus. He followed Jesus around. And when he wrote this specific book, uh, the, the first book of the New Testament, his goal was to show the Israelites specifically, the Jewish people, the people who said their, their forefathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wanted to convince those people that indeed this Jesus who had been born and lived and died on a cross and rose from the grave and then ascended into heaven. He wanted to convince those people that Jesus is the Messiah. Many of us might not use the word Messiah, really know a lot about it, and so that's why context matters. You see, the, I'm just going to do a quick walkthrough of the entire Old Testament, uh, so this will be fun. But the point is really to focus on this. What were the people expecting before Jesus came. And how does Jesus fulfill and walk in all of those promises that God makes to his people, but also to the entire world? So in the beginning, God created everything. And it was all good. And in fact, man was in the garden of paradise. Eden means paradise. And, and his bride was named Eve. And Eve means life. So man was with life in the garden of paradise. And they walked with God. And it was beautiful and perfect. It was shalom as it's meant to be. But then Genesis 3 came. And, and ultimately the serpent, the deceiver, Satan comes to Adam and Eve. And he tells them, is God really to be trusted? He's holding out on you. There's better things for you. In fact, you should want to be God and not submit to God. And so he deceives them and they disobey God. They commit cosmic 
rebellion. And there's consequences by disobeying and defying and and sinning against a perfect and holy God that that God ultimately uh, puts out a curse and he disciplines. And one of the things he says specifically to the serpent is Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. This is called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. This was God speaking to the serpent right after mankind had failed. He turns to the evil one. And he says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He, Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That God, even in the midst of the brokenness, God looks and says, I will fix what you broke, humanity. And he looks directly at the serpent and says, someone will come from the line of Eve born of a woman who will crush wickedness. Well, the story continues on, and and God comes to this man named Abram. And and he tells Abram, he gives him the Abrahamic covenant. He gives him promises. And what he says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is ultimately, I've underlined for you, the, the covenant he makes is, Abraham, I will give you land, seed, and blessing. Right? I will give you a certain land. I will give you offspring or seed. In fact, this seed will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But also, I will bless you so that you might also be a blessing. You might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Not just yours, Abraham, but all the families of the earth. Later, Abraham is so obedient to God that he goes to sacrifice his own son Isaac because God asked him to. And as he's about to sacrifice his son, God saves Abraham's son, his only one son, and instead provides him another sacrifice. But he says, because of your obedience, Abraham, and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so far we've got the seed of woman is coming who's going to somehow crush the serpent's head. And now in this moment, God appears to Abraham and says, through you and your offspring, I will bless the entire world. Well, at the end of Genesis, right, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, which is a lot, right? And so he has these 12 sons, and right before he dies, he gives blessings out to his sons. And he turns to his third oldest son, Judah, What he says to Judah is the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So a ruler will come through the line of Judah, from the family of Abraham, born of a woman. These promises are starting to stack. Something's happening. It's building and building. The next thing we know, well, it happens a little bit later, but but God comes to a man named David. and, And he was King David. And God turns to King David and gives him some promises. The Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And he promises him, like Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. He promises now, through this line of King David, I will establish a house a throne, and a kingdom forever. Meaning a king will come from you, David, who will sit on an everlasting throne. 
And going on in Isaiah, prophets come and they start to explain what this will be like. In Isaiah chapter 9, which we use all the time in Christmas time, but this is the type of kingdom that this Davidic king that comes through the line of David from Abraham, who's born of a woman, this is the type of kingdom that he will have. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So track with me. What has happened? That was like quick synopsis of the Old Testament. I get it. God immediately makes a promise. I'm going to fix what y'all broke through, your lot, through a, a person born of woman that's going to come through the family of Abraham, that's going to come through his Son's son, Judah, all the way down to this man named King David, there will be one that comes who will have this land, seed, and blessing, who will rule on this Davidic throne forever with justice and righteousness. And they're excited and they're anticipating this. Very much like Christmas time as a kid when I was so excited for Christmas Day, I couldn't wait. Please come, Santa, is what I was saying. Come on. I'm so pumped for this. And in this moment, the people are anticipating the arrival of this Messiah. And yet something happens for 400 years called the period of silence. Intertestamental period between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the New Testament. 400 years where God is not speaking through prophets any longer. And the people are wondering, where is God? Is he going to fulfill all of his promises? Do you hear our cry? What are you doing, God? And in fact, they're They're taken captive by Babylonians and Assyrians and Persians and eventually Romans. That these people are are being controlled by pagan empires that are wicked and deceitful and evil. And they're crying out to God, where are you? God, you've made promises. Will you fulfill your promise to your people? And that's where we jump into Matthew chapter 1. And like every good book... Of New York Times bestsellers, he starts with a genealogy. Follow along with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, who was the father of Ram, who was the father of Aminadab, who was the father of Nashon, who was the father of Salmon, who was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. We're one third of the way there. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, who was the father of Abijah, who was the father of Asaph, who was the father of Jehoshaphat, who was the father of Joram, the father of Uzziah, the father of Jotham, the father of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, the father of Amos, the father of Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. (gasps) Two-thirds there. 
And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, the father of Abihu, the father of Eliakim, the father of Azar, the father of Zadok, the father of Achim, the father of Eliu, the father of Eleazar, the father of Mathon, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's a lot of names. And I bet you were eagerly anticipating when I would finish telling you the genealogy. Okay, why are you reading this whole thing? That's a lot of names. Why does it matter? Because you're supposed to start picking up if God is going to be faithful to his promises and he's going to bring about this person who is the Messiah, he has to come through a very specific lineage. So the first thing we're going to learn, there's three things I just want to draw from the genealogy is this. The first thing is that through Jesus' genealogy, we learn God is, in fact, faithful to his promises. Where are you, God? Do you see us? Are you going to fulfill the promises you have made to us? They would be thinking that then, and we're thinking that now. Are you going to come back and make all of this right? Are you going to be faithful to your word? We just spent so much time in Revelation. Are you actually going to do what you said you were going to do? And the answer is yes. That God is faithful to his promises. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy. Now, why would you teach or talk on a genealogy? Again, it's not a New York Times bestseller for us, but for them it was extremely significant because a genealogy was a pedigree given in evidence to prove a title and to make a claim. Think about the people of Israel. See, when Israel entered into the land of Canaan, Joshua's conquest, man, they divided up the land based on families and tribes. And the, and the family of well, Levi, they didn't receive any land because they became the priests. But everyone else received land. And so based on your family, your pedigree, you received a certain amount of land in a specific location. The time of David. Why does genealogy matter? Well, how do we know who's supposed to be king? It has to come through this kingly lineage. Or even after the deportation from Babylon and they come back. Well, who's supposed to be our priests? Do we know who the family of Levi is any longer? Why does Paul in Philippians start to brag, essentially, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin? He's proud that he knows that even in the midst of their deportation, he remembers his family line, which is making a statement. It's giving evidence. It's proving a title. It's making a claim. Matthew is making a claim right now to all the people about who Jesus is. He calls him Jesus. Jesus uh, means Yahweh or the covenant God of Israel. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. It's just the Greek form of the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is Joshua. Very common name in this time period. Jesus was very common name. But then he calls him Jesus Christ. And some of us might know, not know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? Right? I, I totally thought it was for a long time, okay? Right? But Jesus Christ, not his last name, Christ is a fancy word, titulary. 
It is a title turned name. Christ becomes synonymous with the name Jesus. That people start to call him Christ or the Christ. No longer even Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. That he's called Christ. And what does Christ mean? It means Messiah or anointed one. That Matthew is immediately making the claim. Y'all have been longing for this for so long. Y'all been going through this. And guess what? Jesus is the Christ. And let me tell you, let me, let me explain to you how we know this to be true, not just by his life, his death, his resurrection, but, but the family that he came from also makes a claim. He calls him the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Davidic covenant. Remember the house, the throne, the kingdom, the king who will reign on that throne. Okay, starting to pick up. Wait, but also the son of Abraham. Oh, land, seed, and blessing. That in fact, through the offspring in Genesis chapter 22, you remember he says, because of your obedience, through your offspring, I will bless the entire world. Well, Paul explains in Galatians what he meant. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but in fact, God was referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Paul explains even in Galatians that, that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and of David. He is able to be the Messiah. He does come from the line of Judah, Verse 2 and 3. And Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father. Immediately, oh, he comes through that, that third son. Right? The scepter will not depart. And ultimately, if you look at verse 16, Jesus was born of woman. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So just follow with me. Jesus was born of a woman. He came from the family of Abraham through the line of Judah from the family of David. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? Could this be him? Matthew's making the claim he's here. He's on the scene. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Because God is faithful to his promises and he fulfills those promises in Jesus. And he will fulfill the promises that have yet to be fulfilled in our future, which gives us hope. Secondly, what does the genealogy teach us? That God shows favor to all people. You might think it's only going through this one line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right, Judah. It's going through Israelites and Jews, but but you're going to notice some very unique things about this genealogy that was not, it was very rare. It was very uncommon. There were certain names on this list that should have stood out to you that he has to explain. Right? Verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. A woman made into the genealogy. Which in this time period was extremely rare. That, that didn't happen in genealogies. You wouldn't say who who the mom was, who the wife was, and yet all of a sudden, quickly, Tamar. But not only is she foreign to a genealogy as a woman, but she is, in fact, a foreigner. She is not an Israelite. She's from the land of Canaan. 
And verse 5, you see another woman pop up. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Guess what? Rahab was also not an Israelite. She actually was on the walls of Jericho during the conquest. She's a Canaanite as well. And then verse 5, you see another woman pop up. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. You get where I'm going with this? Ruth was also not an Israelite or a Jew. She was a Moabite. What? And then you jump later, verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He mentions a person named Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who had David's kid, Solomon. Well, she was presumably a Hittite because she married a Hittite. So there's foreigners popping up in this lineage, and you're, you're wondering, wait, what's going on? Why would God include and show the people that there's foreigners and there's women in this genealogy? I don't quite understand what's going on. And remember, Jesus is showing something about the character and the heart of God towards people, even in the family that Jesus was born into, that God shows favor to all people, which, praise God, most of us in this room are not Jewish people, that God shows favor to all people. And I love that Jesus the very end of his life, he, he dies, he comes back from the dead, and he tells his people, I have one mission for you that all of you will share. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Talking to Jewish people, telling them to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing and teaching. And I'll be with you to the end of the age that God's heart is for all people to know him. That God desires no one to perish but to have everlasting life. That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. God has a heart for all people and therefore his people should have a heart for all people. Third, the genealogy shows us something very significant. That God redeems and restores fallen people. God redeems and restores fallen people. And I'm just going to let you know that every person in this room is a fallen person. Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came for the disease. Jesus came for the felon. Jesus came for the fugitive. Jesus came for the fallen. Jesus came to make things right. And we actually see that just in his genealogy. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details because it's not appropriate in this moment, but the family of Jesus was jacked up. Like, like really jacked up. I'm going to try and go uh, high level, and then so you don't have to explain too much to your children, but very high level, uh, these people were not good people. God did not choose righteous Jews to come through. He came through a line of broken, fallen, messed up people. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch, man, he was great, wasn't he? A liar who forced his wife Sarah to say she was his sister to be a part of Pharaoh's harem. He was a coward, right? Isaac, well, he'll be better. Isaac did the exact same thing with his wife, Rebecca, made her lie saying she was his sister because he was a coward, and then Isaac's son, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He's got to be good, right? Yeah, yeah, he, he cheated his own blind father 
and, and ultimately stole his brother's blessing. His name was Heel Grabber. Not a, not a great dude. Well, then, what about Judah, though? Judah's got to be good. His son. Yeah, Judah sold his brother into slavery. And then he left his family and married a Canaanite woman. What? What's going on? Tamar, the woman that was shown in this passage, incest with her father-in-law Judah. Prostitution. Rahab shows up. Who was Rahab, this foreigner? She must have been good to be included in the family of God, right? A woman, she made it to jail, she's great. Well, she was on the walls of Jericho as a prostitute. What? This is the family that Jesus is going to enter into? King David, man after God's own heart. He's got to be, he's got to be pretty good. Yeah, he, he lusted after a woman, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then murdered her husband and lied about it. Whoa. I don't understand, God. Why would you enter into such a broken, fallen family? You could have chosen anyone. Well, David had a son, though. Solomon. Wise. So wise that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he worshipped Molech. He was an idolater. He was wicked in the eyes of God. What? Well, Solomon had a son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was senseless and foolish and didn't listen to wise, older counsel. And he decided to, to do things based on his younger crowd of friends. And ultimately, those decisions split up his entire kingdom into two different nations that eventually get sacked by two pagan nations. This is the family of God. That's confusing. Why would God enter into such broken mess? Why would he do that? Hmm. His family line was not populated with the righteous, but with the worthless. The outsiders and the scoundrels and the sinners. He entered into a family of murderers and adulterers and prostitutes and liars and then a bunch of wicked kings. This was the line of Jesus. And it's showing us a picture in Romans chapter 8 where it says that Jesus was, was born into sinful flesh in order that he would condemn sin in the flesh. That Jesus enters into brokenness and everything about his genealogy is already showing us what Jesus' mission is all about. He came to redeem and to restore that which is broken, which is every single one of us. That he did not wait for us to clean up our mess. That there was nobody too far gone. That he would enter into a family of prostitutes and liars and murderers and thieves. And, and if you ever wonder for a second, how could God possibly love me or want to redeem me or my broken story? All you have to do is look at the family of Jesus. And some of you probably have pretty jacked up broken families. And Jesus identifies with you in that. That Jesus knows what it's like to have a broken, messed up family. And yet he still came to redeem them. To restore them. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 and 9. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners. Cosmic rebellion against God. Christ died for us. Much more than because we have now been declared righteous or in a right standing with God by Jesus' own blood, we will be saved through Jesus from God's wrath. This is our story, family. If we have put our faith in Jesus, 
And we see it all in a genealogy that probably a lot of us want to skip most of the time. We don't want to sit in that. And yet, this was the family God chose. Let's go ahead and read then the birth of Jesus. This is probably where a lot of us do turn to when we open up Matthew. I won't read it as fast. Keep your attention easier anyways. The birth of Jesus Christ. Now, in the birth of Jesus Christ, it took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, you know what that means, immaculate conception, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Oh, Joseph comes from the line of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. <sighs> wow. Two truths that we learn from the birth of Jesus, specifically in this way. God is with us. God is with us. See, what you see in this moment, uh, in this engagement period, which is about a year, they'd be betrothed and they'd have to go a year-long engagement, and then finally they would consummate their marriage. And yet, in this moment, Mary becomes pregnant, which I don't know what that conversation looked like of Mary to Joseph, but Mary goes to Joseph, and Joseph, being an honorable and a righteous man, had three options. His option was either to divorce her publicly, to put her to shame, and in fact, uh, there were people all throughout the Old Testament, and the law would say that you would stone the adulteress and the adulterer. And yet, he's a righteous man, he doesn't want to put her to shame, and so he decides to divorce her privately because ultimately to actually marry her was also to go against the Mosaic law, that she has broken commitment and, and this, there's something wrong and, and yet he decides to divorce her privately and then an angel comes and explains to him that the way that your, your betrothed got pregnant is, is by God. That somehow this, this baby is not just a normal baby. It is deity. His baby is genuine deity through an immaculate conception and birth process that God has truly come. In verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name. Joseph didn't get to choose the name. Mary didn't get to choose the name. God chose the name. God chose his own son's name. You shall name his son Jesus. And then he goes on to explain this passage, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. That Jesus is living proof that God is with us. And he's here to stay. What we see in the incarnation of Christ is that ultimately God loves us so much that he condescended and bent so low as to put on human flesh. As Corby said in John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among his own creatures. He added his, the weaknesses and the frailties and the dependencies that all of us have. He put on himself. He was like Shakespeare that entered uh, his own character, his own self into his play. That he wants people to understand, I am the author. I am the creator. I know what's best and I'm entering into your broken situation. Why would he do that? Because God is love. That's also John. God is love and he did not want us to stay in our depravity and brokenness. It shows that somehow God could add human nature while not giving any of his divine nature away. And ultimately, it shows there's a compatibility between unfallen human nature and the divine nature. I know this is getting a little complex, but it's crazy to think that somehow God could put on flesh and dwell among us perfectly fully God and fully man, meaning that ultimately Genesis 1 and 2, there's something about us being made in the image of God that God could actually put on human flesh and still remain fully God. We are the only creatures that can do that. You see, God is with us and it allows us to know he's here in the brokenness. But God doesn't just enter the brokenness. God is not just with us. But ultimately, the birth shows us that God is for us. God is for us. And that's why he says, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That Jesus didn't just come to be a baby, to be a good person. That in fact, the defining character trait that we see in Jesus is he has the power to save you. And he's the only one. We can't save ourselves. That Jesus, in fact, meets us, yes, in our sin, but ultimately it's to save us from our sins. And if we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, as our forgiveness, then ultimately we have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. And over our lifetime, he saves us from ultimately the power of sin as we walk in Christ's likeness. But one day Jesus will return and he will save us from the very presence of sin. Jesus is God with us and Jesus is God for us. Romans chapter 8 again, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Skipping on to 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to redeem broken people. That is you and me. And he did it all by starting out as a baby, growing to be a man, living 
absolutely perfect, dying a sinner's death, raising from the dead, victorious, proving he is God in the flesh, God with us. And he has the power over sin and death and Satan. And he offers us the life that only he deserves. And he received the death that only we deserve. And that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so why would we spend time looking at Jesus every single Christmas season, looking back at him as a baby when he grew up to be a man? We're not like Ricky Bobby. We need to focus on Jesus as an adult and what he did and accomplished. Why would we then look at his birth? Well, here's the application. We anticipate Jesus' second advent by reflecting on his first advent. We anticipate Jesus' return, his second coming, by reflecting on his first coming. We look at his life. We look at his birth, his genealogy. We look at his miracles and his teachings. We look at what he taught about what's coming next. And as we study more and more the person and the work of Jesus, we get excited. We become like Charlie who sits at the window saying, Mama, Mama, and all of us, Jesus Come quickly, please come quickly, Jesus. Everything is broken, but I trust that your promises will be fulfilled. I trust that you came for all people. I trust that you came to redeem the brokenness of this world and the brokenness in me. This is you, Jesus. As we anticipate his second coming, we first need to reflect on his first coming. For some of you in this room, maybe you've never put your trust your belief in Jesus as your Savior. And I just want to say today could be a day that maybe it's clicking and maybe you're starting to understand more and more and maybe you're saying, I do actually want a relationship with the God of the universe. And this only happens through trust and belief in Jesus, what he did and he accomplished. So I just want to encourage you, if you have any questions about what that means to be a Christian, to to follow Jesus as your Savior, to walk with him for a lifetime, to enter into paradise with him forever, please come talk to me or anyone around you. But secondly, for all of us in the room, we can use this time to meditate on the mystery of the Incarnation. I have just a couple different ways because some of us kind of wrestle with how do I use the Christmas time appropriately to long for Jesus by looking back and long for Jesus as we eagerly anticipate his arrival. One thing you can do is just try this out. Tonight, five minutes in silence, which for some of us is really hard. Yeah. Really hard. Just sit in silence. Not to pray, not to read the Bible, not to move into doing things. Just sitting, reflecting on Christmas. What have you done and why would you do it in the way you did it? Just sit in silence. Tonight, five minutes. Simple. Maybe for some of you, you can try a thing like a Jesse tree, which is something me and Kara have been doing. It's, you put ornaments on a little tree. It's easy to do with the family because we just look at an ornament with a picture and a scripture verse. And it just is telling us the story of the Bible. And so we just get to talk with Charlie about it. He doesn't know what we're saying, but we're still doing it, okay? And so we're just talking through these ornaments. We're putting them on the tree, and we're getting excited because every day you put on a new ornament. And you're longing for Jesus' birth on the 25th. Maybe if you don't want to do that, those arts and crafts, you can pick up an Advent devotional. And I know it's only a week away now, but maybe this could become a new rhythm for us. 
as we study and read different devotionals helping us prepare for Jesus' birth, but really for his return. And lastly, I just I encourage you to maybe pick up scripture reading just for this week. I just wrote some of these down. It's not like super complex stuff. It's just the story of Jesus for seven days. Maybe every day you just spend a little bit of time, like tonight, start off on the 18th with the angel visiting Mary and Luke. And then tomorrow you can look at how Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist in her womb. And then we can look at this 13, 14-year-old girl Mary sing this beautiful song of the salvation of Yahweh. And you can do that on the 20th. And just, just walk through that. And just, let, just ask God, speak to me. Help me understand the beauty of the birth. And if you want to make it super simple, you can just read Isaiah 53 every day. Which is very simple, but just Isaiah 53 every single day. Just pray. Read it, pray. Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus as the suffering servant who, who came ultimately to, to take the transgressions of the people through his piercings, and through his death, he might offer us life. Isaiah 53. So I really just pray that as we go throughout this Christmas season, it would be an opportunity for us to look back so that we might look forward. As we look at the character of God and what he entered into on your behalf and on my behalf. Let's pray. Father, just thank you. Thank you that, that you so loved the world that it almost seems, God, like there was nothing else you could do out of your absolute love for broken people, which makes no sense, that you would send your only son. And that, God, simply by believing in Jesus, we might receive life. God, as we look back at Jesus' first advent as his birth in this really gross space in this really broken family, God, that, that we would just be in awe that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That you, Jesus, reveal the Father through everything you are and everything you did. God, I pray that even over the next week, you would build anticipation and excitement for Christmas Day where we get to look back. And that will ultimately lead us to also live differently as we eagerly anticipate your arrival, Jesus. You will come again. You are faithful to your promises. You will do what you said you will do, that you are coming back and you will make all things right. Help us be a people that live now in light of eternity God, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you that you, Jesus, are the King.